Okay. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Shedding Our Way Book Club, uh, broadcasting from the Broom Radio Way. Today's discussion will um, highlight chapter 22, which um, was previously posted on the Broom Radio podcast as a read aloud. And so today's container, um, which happens every Saturday, at 11 a.m. Louisiana time, we'll be discussing and holding space for some points um, around chapter 22 of Hazrat and Yakan's The Mysticism of Sound and Music. So, um, chapter 22 was titled, um, is titled Spiritual Attainment by the Aid of Music. And this chapter was pretty big for me. I have also kind of taken um, notes to write down my process and some of the things that came up for me after, like, a, like upon reading chapter 22. So, like, for me, um, I'll read out some of my notes and some of the things that I felt were the most poignant um, from chapter 22. Um, so, if you're listening asynchronously, I welcome you to reflect on some of these questions yourself. And after listening, if you have um, some of your own perspectives to share on the questions, I welcome you all to comment, to um, at me on Twitter. I'm at Intrepid Bodies on every, um, most social media platforms. Um, so I, yeah, I would love to hear from y'all. And I'm just holding space for uh, what these questions might bring up for you guys in these notes. So the first question I wrote down is, what is spiritual attainment? Like, period. What is it to you? How do you define it after listening to this chapter? After listening to this discussion? The next question is, are all humans seeking harmony? The next note that I made is regarding pupilship, the act of being a pupil or a student. Another note I wrote down is about a life of religion, not a religious life, which is a point made in chapter 22. Another bullet point that I wrote down regarding this chapter is the wordless and mysticism. Another powerful thing that came up during chapter 22 is the interplay of earth worship and sky worship. And then finally, chapter 22 ends on a note about purpose, which I think I'm going to reread for the purposes of this container, just because Hazrat and Yakan was spitting bars, man. He was spitting bars. And so when it comes to spiritual attainment, um, there's this suggestion in the chapter. 
<laughs> bars. Lexi writes in the chat, we um, created an emoji in the um, broom discord to reflect the act of dropping the mic. So like after you say something pretty profound, probably to like a group of people, that mic drop vibe, <laughs> those bars vibe, I think we're very alive in this chapter. And so like for me, um, when Hazrat Inyat Khan speaks to spiritual attainment, um, I believe he kind of challenges a couple of different things. Um, and I think for me, when it comes to spiritual attainment, it's always like in real time, in current time, is always difficult for me to um, not necessarily discern, but place a lot of value on. For me, spiritual attainment is something that's very, very difficult to measure unless you have the privilege of like being in spiritual containment where your refinement and your practice is being measured, um, which to me, I feel like is rare, is, is rare and hopefully not going to be so rare as time goes on. Um, to me, spiritual attainment is not something that you can measure. Um, and it's actually like a conundrum to speak to, and from my perspective, to speak to spiritual attainment because um, as many people who practice and are part of different lineages or who just practice for their own um, joy and wonder probably know, and many of the spiritual accolades that one can experience are hardly ever material. Um, and I think Hazrat Inya Khan makes a beautiful point in, the, uh, in chapter 22 regarding um, the viewpoint of the spiritualist or the mystic and the materialist and how they kind of, I guess to him exists in two different bubbles, but for him in the text, it seems like he's saying that they're kind of pointing at the same thing from different lenses. And so for me, as somebody who wavers from like spiritualism to materialism, because I do like nice things. <laughs> I think a lot of people do. Um, I think it's important for me, as I was reading, I was just thinking about how these two bubbles are interwoven and how um, they're not necessarily dependent on each other, but that sometimes spiritual attainment can be marked by material outcome and how different levels of spiritual initiation being, I'll say for the sake of this container, mastered or um, approached can result in material output. But as a lot of different lineages and traditions tout, they speak to not relying on the material um, outcome for one's spiritual practice. Like you shouldn't hinge your spiritual practice basically. Um, that's what people say, I don't agree with that, on material <laughs> things. Um, and and I, the only reason why I don't agree with that is because I would never try to tell people what they should do. <laughs> but like for me, um, I try to make a practice out of not hinging my practice on um, material outcome. I think because it dulls the, um, the bridges between between those different worlds and so when i say like different worlds it's not like they're again existing in perpetuity outside of themselves i think materialism and spiritualism are inherently 
yeah, they're inherently connected. However, it does seem like Hazrat and Yaqan speaks to um, something that is missed when you have a wholly material worldview. And I would agree uh, because I find that within myself where I'm like, I'm only focused on the material, when I'm only focused on like my to-do list, when I'm only focused on what I'm going to get out of a situation. Sometimes I can speak for myself. Um, I miss the juice. I miss the gem. I miss the pearl of wisdom that is resting behind the moment, or I should say resting with the moment. And um, I'm curious for those who are here live and those who are here listening, if you want to take a moment to like write down what your relationship is to spiritualism and what your relationship is to materialism. And I'd be curious, like, what is the thing that bridges, bridges those two realities for you? Um, Lexi writes in the chat, um, in the live chat, that aligns or aligns for me too. Yeah, thanks for saying. Take a sip of my coffee. And I'm going to read a section. I see that Lexi's typing, so I'm going to hold space for your response, Lexi. And I'm going to read um, a paragraph, uh, paragraph number three. In chapter 22, I'm going to read part of it because I think there's also an added layer to how Hazrat Inya Khan sees materialism in this book. Um, and so, like, we have a modern interpretation of materialism, which is like, I like nice things, I get what I want, I want, want, want what I want, want, want. And that's a very poignant rally cry for a lot of people to like give themselves permission to have desire, but halt. Like oftentimes I notice that people, um, I just notice that there is a tendency to gravitate towards um, material outcome reflecting a person's spiritual state. And it's interesting because I feel like there's a dichotomy in a lot of like Eastern traditions that speak to kind of, and, and it's very alive in Sufism to this annihilation of one's base desires. And annihilation can be a pretty big word, but I also <laughs> feel like it speaks to how um, the ego or like the conceptual self can um, run towards certain ideas um, so that the the effulgence of the soul. And I don't think people are wholly conscious when they do this, right? I just think it's a tendency for ideas to gravitate towards consumption and like physical attainment, um, as opposed to exploring what it is, what's behind those desires. Um, and so in other words, it's like, it's interesting because I feel like it's a little bit of a paradox where, um, materialism can reflect or certain things 
in the material world can reflect, again, one's state of their soul, which I think we've talked about too in previous chapters, like how you can adorn yourself in sacred ways. You can, um, you know, jive with music and art in very specific and sacred ways. But there's also something that I feel like Hazrat Inyat Khan is speaking to that materialism creates what he calls a denseness, denseness in the um, human experience and in the soul. So I'm going to read this part where he speaks about it. Um, he says, so it is with human nature. One person is heavy and dull. You tell them something and they cannot understand. You speak to them and they won't hear. They will not respond to music, to beauty, or to art. And what, what is it? It is denseness. There is another person who is ready to appreciate and understand music and poetry or beauty in any form, in character, in manner, in every form. Beauty is appreciated by such a person. It is, it is this that is the awakening of the soul that the living condition of the heart, that is the living condition of the heart, and it is this that is the real spiritual attainment. He says, spiritual attainment is to make the spirit live, to become conscious, and when people are not conscious of soul and spirit, and is only conscious of the material being, they are dan dense. Oh my God, this word, dense, and I do not get along. Um, he says, that person is dense and they are away from spirit. So one thing I notice here is that Khazra Inya Khan is um, creating, I think, a really large or engaging playing field um, where one can measure how tuned in they are to spirit and to soul. And for him, um, I guess this is kind of what I was getting to, right? It's like, I think he also says it in this chapter. For him, it seems like the material is not the bad thing. It's the way by which people relate to certain things that kind of distort um, the way that they engage with their soul and their spirit and the material. And so for him, it's, it's as if he's positioning himself by saying that the soul and the spirit are the true reality, and the material is maybe a secondary reality, and that being too attached to the material or creating a lot of identification or kind of front-loading one's self-concept in the purely material, um, he says dampens or creates density in relation to the soul and the spirit. And to me, that just speaks to a disconnect that I, that I think he's pointing to. Um, what do you think, Lexi? I saw that you were typing a couple of times, so I wanna hold um, some space. <laughs>
I'm going to read out Lexi's response. <clears throat> Lexi writes, yes, to answer your previous question, I feel like growing up, I often put spiritualism over materialism, but was also disconnected from it and myself, that I didn't know how to actually work with both. And it felt like it was always conceptual for me. To bridge it though, I would say working with materialism through a centered place can be a way to bridge both. I, I have to agree with that. I think that aligns for where I, I'm at to reading this um, chapter because I can't imagine a world where, um, you know, society fully returns to a non-physical um, perception regarding reality. Um, I do think that there are different people who can prioritize their connection to spirit and soul while engaging in the material. And I'd even go so far as to say like in soul, the material with their intention and their spiritual work. And I think that that would lift <clears throat> with the denseness that um, Hazrat Inya Khan is uh, pro proposing, I, I think that I've also experienced that where I've tried or have swung in one or the other direction where I'm like, I'm fully materialist or I'm fully spiritualist. And yeah, I like that you use the word bridge, Lexi, because I think that they are bridges to each other. Um, you know, there's things that happen in the material that directly remind me and make it to my spiritual practice. I'd say even the bulk of my spiritual practice is cultivating myself against or alongside the material. So yeah, there's definitely been a few chapters of evolution in my own practice that have had to, um, <clears throat> like you said, like balance or create bridges so that I could have like working relationships with all different forms of reality, as opposed to, um, like you said, always relating to things through um, conceptual lenses. So I feel very similar. And I think also too, with Hazrat Anyat Khan's point is like, or he has this um, kind of base understanding from, from my understanding of his reading. Uh, that <clears throat> all humans and all things are seeking harmony. And I, I would say, I would say that is, that is true to a certain degree. I would say that um, even schools of science kind of like give a lot of ashe to that, like where they're like, things are constantly um, looking for, or looking to reach a state of homeostasis, things are constantly trying to balance themselves out from the most base material to the most macro um, interplay of relationships that you can think of on this realm. And I, I would have to agree. And I would also say that when things are not seeking harmony, then they're probably more closer to the denseness that um, and denseness is not a bad word, it's, it doesn't mean like, oh my God, means that something is lifeless or that it doesn't, you know, 
it doesn't belong here. <laughs> I feel like um, what it speaks to, to me from my perspective is, is that um, the denseness speaks to a maybe like closing of, of specific channels that would expose one to the interplay that we're kind of speaking to between spirit and matter. Um, and so for, for the most part, I would have to agree that all humans, at least, whether conscious of it or not, are seeking harmony. And it also seems like Hazrat and Yakan is saying that the more conscious we are of our desire for harmony, of our like primal need, I would say, for harmony, then the more we're in the fold of what he would call like a spiritual life or spiritual attainment. And so it's interesting because it kind of brings me to my next point or he speaks to, um, well, I'll come back to what he speaks to about being a pupil, but it brings me to what he says about living a life that reflects like religion and devotion and not necessarily living a religious life. And I want to hold some space because that was very... When I read that part, I was like, whoa, light bulb. Like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> like, wait a minute. I can relate to this. And um, yeah, I'd love to know, Lexi, like, what do you think of, of that dichotomy? I think I'll also read. So it's on chapter 22, paragraph 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, paragraph 7. And the last chapter I read seems to have been paragraph 4 and not paragraph three for anyone else who's following along. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna read this part. Um, it says, to attain spirituality is to realize that the whole universe is one symphony in which every individual is one note. One's happiness lies in becoming perfectly harmonious with the symphony of the universe. It is not following a certain religion that makes one spiritual or having a certain belief or being a fanatic in regard to one idea or becoming too good to live in this world. Many good people there are who do not even understand what spirituality means. They are very good, but they do not yet know what the ultimate good is. Ultimate good is harmony itself. For instance, all the different principles and beliefs of the religions of this world taught and proclaimed by priests and teachers, but that people are not always able to follow and express, come naturally from the heart of people as they attune themselves to the rhythm of the universe. He goes on to say, <clears throat> their every action, every word they speak, every feeling they have, every sentiment they express is all harmonious. It is all virtues, it is all religion. It is not following a religion, it is living a religion, making one's life a religion. That is necessary. Ooh. So Lexi writes in the chat, it makes me think of living every day with integrity, a life of religion versus living life through scripture, a religious life, Ashe. Lexi also says, it really hit for me coming from lots of religious dogma, from family and having to deprogram a lot, Ashe. 
as as it did for me. And I think it speaks to, thank you for sharing that, by the way, Lexi. Um, yeah, to me, it speaks to how some of our religious practices, whether in the East or the West, I just think the culture behind what it takes to be in spiritual practice has been co-opted by religions. And, and um, I think a lot of, a majority of people are kind of moving mechanistically, in my opinion, through religious practices. Um, you know, even in some of the uh, mosques and um, religion schools that I attended or classes that I attended, I won't say all, for the most part of them, they were like robotic. Um, and there's arguments for that, right? Where a lot of people are like, well, in this particular religious school, we lay down the skeleton and the framework. I'm having deja vu right now, which is always so cool to me. Um, a lot of uh, religions are like, we're laying down the framework and the groundwork for people to like learn the prayers, learn the customs, learn the traditions, and then people can fill in meaning later, which has worked, I think, for a couple centuries. Um, but it's almost like this this argument that Hazrat Anya Khan is making is making is helping me rethink this. In that, especially when he says like all of life is religion, that all of life can be imbued with a spirit and soul focus. And it kind of relates to what I was saying earlier about insouling the material, like imbuing the material as part of one's spiritual practice, I think is, is what Hazrat Inya Khan is saying mirrors this life that has the integrity, like you said, Lexi, or braids together the, um, the effluence of the connection that one may have to the divine in one's everyday life. And I, and I just think about the everyday person who most people are, <laughs> who are just out there and like, you know, giving things before they have a meal at their lunch break, um, that they're really relatable and warm to their coworkers, that they are supportive as best as they can be to their family, um, people who love themselves with the same kind of love that they give other people people who are kind to children, people who are kind to animals. And these are all like standard virtues, you know? And then there's people who like actually live by those standard virtues who have probably never entered a church or who have never been to a synagogue or have never worshiped on a prayer mat. And so I think it also helps me reposition the idea of spiritual devotion, where it's like this, the spiritual person have to be the person who wears like a, a kufti hat, who has like, you know, robes on from different sacred traditions. Or can we also see the devotee and the person who shows up for um, their ecosystem of relationships or of somebody who's, you know, waters their lawn and like takes care of the land that they live on, who conserves uh, their, their resources and is in right relationship with the earth. Like, to me, I'm like, what's more devoted than that, in my opinion, you know, and somebody who refines those relationships, you know, who isn't just like statically playing this role of a good person, um, somebody who actually like challenges themselves to, to do that, to ensoul their environment with the mark or the, the perfume 
of the divine. Yes, so Lexi writes in the chat, this also reminds me of how some people who might not be explicitly spiritual and are living quote unquote regular lives are in alignment with the earth and the cosmos. And I agree. I really agree with that, like no cap, because I think that for too long, the act of the container of devotion between an individual and the divine or the one or the all that is has been um, gatekept by specific traditions. But it's like, it's like what Hazrat and Yakan is saying, and even what I feel is true, um, feels like it relates more to like this down to earth, everyday relationship um, with the all that is, the cosmos, their earth, their ancestry. Um, it almost like, it's, it feels like this part of the chapter is like a permission slip to, to be like, you know, wh wherever you are in life, how your integrity is formulated is also, um, I think, I think is, a, is a spiritual practice. Everybody might not say that, but I do. I think, I think it is. And also kind of depressurizes too, this, the human urge to connect with something greater than themselves, which I think rely, lies in most people's hearts. And that could just, that could be a projection on my end. However, I do believe that people are seeking a connection, um, even in current time with something larger to themselves. But I think if they um, had more outlets to understand that right where they are and right where they stand is like a, being in align, alignment with the cosmos and the, the earth, it would kind of, I think, I think, I would hope and like welcome not only more awe and like, you know, celebration in people's lives and joy. I think it would also open up a wellspring of like deep contemplation and like deep reflection to where it doesn't have to hurt to be <laughs> a person who is spiritually devoted. And it also doesn't have to be, I imagine, as isolating. Um, to to understand that yeah that there there is space for and there is room in one's life for them to be devoted and ensouled and and not dense and not feeling like gatekept from this this celebratory experience with the divine um if that makes sense i hope that makes sense <laughs> And yeah, I see Lexi's resonating in the chat or throwing up some emojis. We got the whew emoji and the pink heart wrapped in yellow ribbon, which is so poignant for me. And Lexi says, yeah, it aligns for me. Thank you. Um, so yeah, I wanted to also go to another section in this chapter. Um, yes, I wanted to go to the 
um, section where Hazrat Anyat Khan speaks to being a pupil and the work of being a teacher. And it's interesting because I'm like a lot of people, a lot of people in current time like really say like, like they try to like get away from, I've seen a couple people at least be like, I don't want to be a spiritual teacher. Or they don't consider themselves a spiritual teacher. Um, so like, it's interesting. That's like how I approach that um, dichotomy. But then it's like Hazrat and Yakan flips that polarity for me and he approaches spiritual uh, cultivation from the side of the student or the pupil. So I'm gonna read this part or part of this paragraph so we can anchor in it a bit. Paragraph one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. So it's on paragraph twelve, and I'll give you guys a chance to catch up. If you have the physical book, it's on page 132. And so the paragraph starts. <clears throat> the difficulty in the spiritual path is not always what comes from ourselves. People do not like to be a pupil. They like to be a teacher. If only people knew that the greatness and perfection of the great ones who have come from time to time in this world was in their pupilship, not in their teaching. The greater the teacher, the better pupil they were. They learned from everyone, the great and the lowly, the wise and the foolish, the young and the old. They learned from their lives and studied human nature in all of its aspects. So it's interesting. Um, the context here speaks that everybody wants to be a teacher. <laughs> and I'm saying that a lot of people are scared of being teachers. <laughs> so what an interesting paradox. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that, yeah, I think that in the context, like for me in current time, um, I think I'm just kind of speaking to like the spiritual um, community or the spiritual impulse of current time and how, um, yeah, like in the West, a lot of people, um, a lot of practitioners, a lot of even people who just study out loud do not consider themselves um, teachers or people who can pass on knowledge or wisdom. Um, and then Hazrat and Yat Khan's criticism of that seems to be because a lot of people don't know how to be on the other or like there's a, a a difference of how people approach being a pupil or student and to me that definitely aligns um i think it's manifold like one thing that i want to say is is that i think for me that that is true to some degree that being a good teacher or being an effective teacher um starts with being a good student and I think being a good student works because it offers one the receptivity and the ability to listen and the ability to um, receive wisdom from another person and apply it, which is a bridge in and of itself. And so learning how to do that enough times, 
I guess in this framework is the making of somebody who can facilitate or teach or impart wisdom to other people. Um, and I see Lexi's typing, so I want to hold a little bit of space. <laughs> So Lexi says, ooh, I think I have fear with being a teacher. <laughs> Laughing emoji. <laughs> I think a lot of people do, yeah. And I think that might be what I'm picking up on. Um, and Lexi continues to say, uh, it's probably related to programming or fear around potentially misguiding people, which I probably also picked up from religion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. And I see Lexi's typing some more, so I'm going to hold a little bit more space. Oh, okay, Lexi continues. But I think I also have been feeling like maybe the teacher archetype might be evolving into a guide archetype or something. Yeah. What would be the different um, features of a guide that would be like an evolved version of the teacher for you? Because I can, I can definitely see that geometry. I also am being guided to look up the etymology of pupil. And so I'll share that in the chat. Pupil comes from the Middle English pupelle. And from the Anglo-Norman, pupale, signifying the word orphan, or little boy, or child, or boy. And then it goes on to say that pupil means a learner at a school under the supervision of a teacher, one who studies under supervision of a renowned expert in their field. It also means an orphan who is under, or who is a minor and under the protection of the state. And the way to use it in, on Wiki, it says a pupil is typically a young person, such as a school child. Older learners, for example, at university are generally called students. So I'll share this in the etymology channel of um, the Broom Discord. Again, if y'all want to join the Discord, that's where you get all the kind of behind the scenes and live work that goes into some of these containers. So let me share that. Okay, sweet. Um, I guess for me, what I'll say is that 
I just, I, and I also feel as though the teacher archetype in this text has a different connotation, but I'm going to read what Lexi said in the chat first. Lexi says, I feel like a true guide allows people to think for themselves and allows them to develop their own ways. I feel like a teacher or maybe old ways of teaching might be like indoctrinating people in some way. I think what I'm learning is that teacher points to guide in this kind of context for my own ancestry, at least. Ah, I see what you mean. So it's like, oh, that adds another layer because that's kind of what I was gesture about to gesture at too. So I'm glad that you said that, that I think that based on different traditions and different ancestral frameworks and geometries, teaching might mean something different to every different respective lineage, which of course I think just brings a wellspring of subjectivity into this chat, um, as well as the word guide. Guide also has, I think, different connotations across different lineages, which is really, really key um, because I do think that there is a framework in a lot of Eastern traditions, I would even say in African traditions in um, kind of old world traditional practices, um, teachers kind of point to somebody who models a way of life that can be offered and shared across different lineages, across different languages, across different ages. And usually, and I might just be speaking from my lineage's perspectives. I, I am speaking from my lineage's perspectives where I'm like, usually that's the framework that teachers take up as somebody who is a model for what is the quote unquote ultimate good and way to survive and thrive within a given societal context. Um, and I think that as time has gone on, the work of that spiritual modeling has been co-opted and uh, I'd say gatekept by a lot of, um, um, modern, more modern post-Christic spiritual traditions, uh, where the teacher is usually now a priest or someone of a particular lineage. Whereas at some point in history, from my lineage's perspectives, the teacher was somebody who was just in the thick of it, I guess you could say, as much as the quote-unquote average person. Um, and so maybe some of those traditions are receiving the, the spiritual exchange to where they can, sort, so to speak, update the technology that relates to how they define what a teacher is. And I think for me, as I was reading this chapter, um, another point that was made by Hazrat and Yat Khan is that um, a really important part of being a pupil and a teacher, I would say, is to start to build the habit or the muscle of unlearning, which is, to me, the way that I understood it is the ability to unpack a collected school of knowledge and to unlearn those collected schools or collected ideas and opinions so that it's what he calls it, it's a part of completing the knowledge cycle and so i'll read the part of the paragraph that this speaks to hey matcha thanks for joining 
we're talking about um, Hazrat Inyat Khan's The Mysticism of Sound and Music and how to unlearn to relearn. Oh, before I actually go on to unlearning, well, no, I'll read that and then I'll talk about the example about coming to a spiritual teacher with a full cup and a covered cup, which I really loved. Um, but I'll read this paragraph. Let me count it down. One, two, three. I need to number my paragraphs before I join book club. Know for myself in the future. Um, so this is paragraph one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Um, so it is paragraph 15. And so I'll read it out loud. Um, Hazrat Inyat Khan writes, mystics therefore have adopted a different way. They have learned a different course and that course is self-effacement or in other words, unlearning what one has learned. They say in the East that the first thing that is learned is to understand how to become a pupil. They do not first learn what God is or what life is the first thing is to learn how to become a pupil. One may think that 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 in this one in in this way one loses one's individuality. But what is individuality? It is it, it is it not that which is collected? What are one's ideas and opinions? They are just collected knowledge. This should be unlearned. And he goes on to say, how can one unlearn? You would say that the character of the mind is such that what one learns is engraved upon it and how then one can unlearn it. Unlearning is completing knowledge. And then he goes on to like share an example of how people unlearn, which is like one person says, that person is wicked, which he thinks that is learning. So identifying another person as a particular characteristic is you learning and I, I would even say discerning how to identify what is what in the world. And then he says, if you go further and recognize from the same person that you called wicked, right? That you see that there is goodness in that person, then you have unlearned. So unlearning is the sense-making process behind, let's say that discernment. So let's say we're at the grocery store and we're like, yo, that tomato is rotten. And then we pause and then we're like, oh, but there are other tomatoes and I'm going to tell the store clerk that this one is rotten or depending on the store, I'll just pick it up and throw it away myself so that people who come after me can be exposed to fresh tomatoes and I can just choose a fresh tomato. So identifying the tomato is rotten is learning, identifying and seeing it. And then unlearning is realizing that there's other tomatoes that you can choose or you can grow your own tomatoes or you can, or you can. So like the, the kind of portals that open up after that are what he determines as unlearning. So I wonder what y'all make of that. If anything, 
like I find I kind of find that concept amazing because I, I like in the sense that it fills me with awe because I'll do that every single day I do that every day where I'm like I identify something as something and then later on like my internal dialogue will be like well it's also this and you know it's also this and then there's also this opportunity so <laughs> Lexi says, I feel like I relate um, on learning to dismemberment. I definitely do, too. Lexi also says, I'm wrong 200 times a day. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> yeah, man. I Yeah, that definitely checks out for me. This one is called, um, it's chapter 22, Spiritual Attainment by the Aid of Music. <laughs> I think that was the chapter we read last week, correct? I think so, yeah. I did a little bit of skipping around because I have just realized that when a lot of us, when we're just engaging with this book, this book is really central to a lot of topics that come up in the room, whether like directly or adjacently. So I had looked through chapters 19 and 20 and I'm like, why would we read this? We literally just live through this and we live through it every day. Cause like chapter, oh, and chapter 21, chapter 19 is titled, um, it's chapter 19, it's super short. The influence of music upon the character of a man. Then the next one is the psychological influence of music and the healing power of music, which um, I think it was two book clubs ago um, that we, yeah, like we really, really went in on those different topics. Or I'm like, dang, like we didn't even read it yet. And we have already like approached those topics, which is pretty impressive to me. I love when that kind of stuff happens. Okay, sweet, 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 sweet. So yeah. Let me also go back to my notes because I feel like we talked about a lot of different things. Um, I think I'll be able to approach the wordless and mysticism, which is like one of the topics that I wanted to cover. However, I'm like, it seems like a conundrum to speak about the wordless mystic world with words. So we'll see. We'll see if I get to that. I might save it for next, um, next book club. And so I wanted to bring our attention to another paragraph um, bear with me one moment while I count it down. It is has to do, oh, sorry. No, hey, hey, Matcha. Uh, I feel like some of this stuff on unlearning and relearning has to do with Zoya or Habibano mentioned in the broom 
way, I think. Yes. Nice. What do you remember what she said or do you want to read any part of what she said? Um she talked about something called the Goffman something. Hold on. Yeah. Dun dun dun. Goffman's image management theory. I wonder what that's about. And it's like kind of about reading the room, I guess. But she mentioned um, about people wanting to help or contribute. Why do we reduce them to what they might have left out? Or like the tendency to hold some people onto pedestals. So I guess you would have to unlearn and relearn mm-hmm. some assumptions about other people, I think. That checks out for me. Yeah. Dude, thanks for sharing that. Cause I, I didn't get to look into that theory, but I'm like, when yeah, reading the room kind of amounts to that to me, where it's like I might walk into a room and like have preconceived notions about people and position and power and like how it takes like a secondary, more subtle sense, not an invisible sense, but like a more subtle sense to like actually suss out the vibe, if that makes sense. And I think that, yeah, that does have to do with unlearning for me, where it's like I have to kind of peel back whatever is written on my brain, like all my frontal lobe that does, I think, have to do with like making assumptions about people. Um, And I think that we make assumptions for like our safety to like be socially like um, correct or socially in line with like the power dynamics in the room and the social dynamics in the room. But I think also there's there's a huge push in like modern culture. I think a lot of people um, in the social justice world, uh, no matter how deep they are in it, are really, really about that. Where they're like, I have to like unlearn to relearn in order to re-engage with the world. And also in their in the social justice world, for example, where they unlearn to re-engage with the world to seek to find clarity on what to fight for. And I think it can be really helpful, even if you're not in social justice, to be able to read the room so that um, we're approaching one another from this spirited and ensouled place, as opposed to like the assumptions that we make of each other. And I'm, I'm partial because I feel like mystics and people who, most people I know who have like a working spiritual practice are usually. Um, are usually the people who like really see behind all those like social norms and stuff like that. And they do a lot of work to exist outside of those social norms. So it's funny. Cause I'm like, I didn't know if I was going to get to the mystic part about the unseen, but I think that that's what a lot of mystics that I know um, tend to like the reality behind the room, let's say, for example, um, which is really interesting to me. I'm curious what comes up for y'all.
Because, yeah, in this chapter, um, in the paragraph that I wanted to read, too, which I'll, I'll read out loud, um, Hazrat Inyat Khan says, This does not mean that our learning is of no use. It is of great use. It gives us the power of discrimination and of discerning differences. This makes the intelligence sharp and the sight keen so that we understand the value of things and their use. It is all part of human evolution and all useful. So we must learn first and unlearn afterwards. And I'll pause right there. So yeah, I really, I'm enjoying this idea of learning and unlearning, even in a spiritual way, um, even in a common everyday way, because it, it seems like Hazrat and Yakan is saying that doing it in the common everyday way is also part of um, spirituality or spiritual attainment. Curious if you guys agree or if you guys are like, nah, that doesn't work for me. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I feel like this also kind of relates to just the state of education in general, right? A lot mm -hmm. of kids are like, oh, why do I have to learn it? I'll never use it. <laughs> so true. <laughs> but I don't know. It's not completely useless. Mm -hmm. You just used it in just a different way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Yeah. I was definitely that kid, too, where I'm like, when am I ever going to use calculus in real life? And then it necessarily never, because I'm like, I've never used calculus, but I've used like this, the muscles that calculus made me stretch in life. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't know if I'm ever going to be doing calculus like at the grocery store, but I'm like the way that like my brain, and I feel that too as a teacher where I'm like, I've been in moments as an educator where I look at the curriculum that I'm about to teach and I'm like, why the heck do the kids even need to, <laughs> to know this? This is so ridiculous. But then like, I'll get to the end of the lesson, for example, and I'm like, oh, I even learned something new. <laughs> like, and it might not have even been the lesson. It might've been like how tough the lesson was to teach is like, that's feedback for me too, you know? But yeah, I really, I love that example, Matcha. <laughs> Especially considering like currently in, a, in the social climate, lots of people are complaining about shielding, like how, how ineffective I'll say, because I don't think it's the students, because I was going to be like how dumb American kids are, but I'm like, no, it's not the kids. I think how ineffective the curriculum is. And I think that when students have that attitude, they're not wrong. You know, but I think as like young adults and adults, we can we have a little bit more foresight than they do to be like, well, it might not be the thing you're learning. It might be the skill that you need, you know. Um, so I'm going to read what Lexi said in the chat. The muscle part feels important to me, like the work that was done still ended up being fruitful or helpful in some way. 
Yeah. That part. Thanks for saying that, dude. And then Lexi writes, especially if schools make kids learn things that might be misaligned for them in the context that they are learning them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, there's so much that gets lobbed onto learners and pupils that they are. I've actually been part of projects where I like sat down to look at like a middle school English curriculum and sat down with like a team of like social workers, psychologists, researchers and developmental um i think there was a developmental psychologist where we basically were like examining that and like taking data back to be like okay this is what the kids ought to be doing like we had charts of like where kids should have been reading level wise where they actually were what the state projected reading level was where the country's projected le reading level was and like created this um, variable in a graph to basically generate some tips to see what what people could do to close those gaps. And then I think after we did like two days of research, one thing that the developmental psychologists um, noted for all of us, like in the professional sense was like that there are developmental gaps. And so like, for me, that was like the first time, it was super early in my teaching career where I was like, dang, like, Teaching has to happen outside of the classroom, not just in the classroom for it to be effective. And so like then, because if it's not, then it's like you're just like lobbing on more knowledge into the, the cycle of knowledge of the young learner. And they might not even developmentally be tuned to flex those muscles like we were talking about to receive that knowledge or store away the skill or implement the skill somewhere else. So it's, it kind of feels timely that we're like talking about learning and unlearning because I know that it's a big conversation right now in not only social media, but in like many households where families are like struggling and not really sure what to do to like close those gaps, you know? And so, yeah, this feels, this feels really important. Yeah, and Lexi says they can still develop their own internal cultivation or cultivate themselves internally in material benefit, even if material benefit is not there. Absolutely. And there are different schools and like daycares and um, learning institutions that focus on um, really observing students in an, a very like natural or lightly prompted environment. And I wish that that was more the norm, like on a public school level, I pray that like there is a vibe switch where students are maybe observed or pupils are observed for their capacity and their skill and then given a subset of knowledge or skill to learn and um, build that muscle over time as opposed to like sticking a kid in a classroom and being like, 
hey, you're in seventh grade, you should be at this level, why aren't you doing your homework? It's like there's so many variables that contribute to that. But unfortunately, a lot of the time that's just seen as defiance, which I don't agree with. Thanks for saying that, Lexi. And thanks, y'all, for bringing that up because I think it's really important. I've even been considering going back to school a couple of different times. Um, but I'm, al I'm also still unlearning <laughs> the way that schooling and schoolishness impacted me. So, yeah, this conversation feels really timely. Definitely. Lexi says, school is becoming community-oriented, maybe, and with how teachers and students interact with each other. Yes. And I think a lot of different, I wish that there was more, and this, I guess, is the last thing I'll say on this. Like, I, I wish that there was more cultural exchange with different schools and learning organizations in general, um, where maybe different um, school leaders from different parts of the world could like meet with each other or could organize so that there was maybe not continuity, but like maybe a staggered approach to the way that learning in America and in the West, which is where some of us live now, um, looked like if there was just more information exchange from teachers. But I also know that administrators and teachers are like super, super spent and exhausted a lot of the times. And so they give the bare minimum because they're given the bare minimum. So yeah, I definitely feel like there is something to be worked around that exchange between teacher, student, even teacher and administrator, and even administrator to the state. Um, and those dynamics, I think, can definitely be reimagined, I'd like to think. Oh, yeah, y'all, this is sick. Okay, I'm gonna um, go to the last point and then, yeah, I think wrap up book club. This has been a very fruitful conversation. Um, and the last thing that I kind of wanted to talk about is this idea that Hazra Anyat Khan presents around the interplay of the earth and the sky. Um, and how the earth and the cosmos, as I'm rephrasing it, have this relationship um, in order of not only just evolution, but interconnectedness. And so I'm gonna read this, it's in the same, um, same paragraph that I had mentioned earlier. So I'll read it and then I would, yeah, I would love to hold space for a little bit of discussion. So, Hazra and Yakan is saying, it is all part of human evolution, learning and unlearning, and all useful. 
So we must learn first and unlearn afterwards. You do not first look at the sky when you are standing on earth. First, you look at the earth and see what it offers you to learn and to observe. But at the same time, do not think that your life's purpose is fulfilled by looking at the earth. The fulfillment of life's purpose is in looking at the sky. So that's actually like the last kind of point that I wanted to talk about is this idea of how observing nature, the earth and the sky can be a very responsive way to track our own human evolution. And I also wanted to talk a little bit about purpose in this whole kind of circle of engagement that we've been having so far. And I just really love how Hazrat Inyat Khan is like breaking down his order of operations where he's like, first look at the earth and see what it offers. Then after you look at the earth and you've learned, to learned and observed, don't think your life purpose is fulfilled by looking at the earth. So for me, I would be like, it feels like he's saying like, this could work also with learning and unlearning the duality of finding purpose. And these are all very real parts of the human experience where all of us are born into this world, you know, and interface with the material. And then at some point we stand up straight and we can tilt our head back and observe that we're underneath a sky that reflects changing weather, that reflects, you know, sunny days and cloudy days. And somewhere in between that, in that learning and unlearning that our purpose is found and I'd even say, dare I even say fulfilled. And so, I don't know, for me as this, I'll just speak for myself, like when I read this part, I was like, oh my God, these are bars, this is amazing. And I think it's because it, yeah, I feel like it resounds and relates to this human um, epitaph where it's like, first we learn in controlled environments, then we're like brought into lightly prompted environments. And this might not be everybody's experience. I'm definitely just speaking from my experience. Then later on, we have a wider, you know, container to like explore and learn. And then, and then at some point that container turns boundless, which to me relates to the sky. And we learn how to contain and hold all the, not hold all of that, but learn how to become a part of that throughout our human evolution, throughout different relationships, through different um, pieces of knowledge that we relate to, through um, different moments of self-reflection within your own self, that time in and of itself, the passing of time helps us and supports us, even though a lot of people feel like time is against them. But I feel like what Hazra and Yakan is saying that time actually supports uh, the the mystic urge to allow what is unseen to not only help one learn about the world, but to find their purpose in the world. Which, yeah, I would love to know what you guys make of that. Hey, Psychonaut. 
we are talking about learning and unlearning, the mystic point of view in the world, finding one's purpose with the space between the earth and the sky. So they're pretty big topics, but if you can find an entryway, I would, yeah, I would love to hear from you. And I also see Lexi's typing, so I'm gonna hold some space. <laughs> Oh man, no worries. Thanks for joining us. Okay, um, I'm going to read what Lexi said out in the chat. Lexi said, I feel like I'm being reminded of one of the archetypal hour containers, which is a container that happens every Sunday here in the Broom Radio. Um, Lexi writes, I'm reminded of one of the archetypal containers where you mentioned the earth and I mentioned the sky and I felt like we were working with primordial yin relating it to the earth and primordial yang relating it to the sky. I was feeling into the connection with the aspect of that container in this passage from the book. Ashe. Ashe. Yeah, Lexi. I also really am glad you brought in um, primordial yin and primordial yang because that's, um, when I read this part of the text, that's exactly what rippled throughout my field where I was like, wow, like this, um, this uh, relationship between primordial yin and primordial yang is something that has a lot of space in the broom and that we talk about a lot and that we're finding that harmony within ourselves. And so in this part of the passage, I was like, dang, dang. So this is, first of all, it's not just us. And also like, it was kind of affirming too to read that there is um, 
sort of a resounding, I would, ev- I would even say maybe a cultural shift towards, um, towards that impulse in some spiritual circles. So thank you. Thank you so much for saying that. <laughs> I won't. I won't, um, psychonaut, I won't say a thing. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, and that might, and you know, primordial yin and yang might be abstract for people to connect to. I would say that primordial yin and yang is the aspect of our field and our experience that, um, spiritually speaks to, yeah, I think an unseen aspect of um, energetic vortices that are constantly, I guess, um, balancing and harmonizing um, not only us and our self-concept, but helping harmonize our, our relationship to the world, our relationship to the divine. Um, our relationship to the earth. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's a source of, of life. I mean, some people would call the primordial yin and primordial yang mother, father, God, you know, shielding. <laughs> I know there's a wacky documentary going on around mother God stuff right now, but um, <laughs> yeah, I think some people would, would call, would call that um, many different things, but yeah. It feels like a really um, strong basis and a foundation to help any anyone who's reading this chapter um, kind of also understand the lens that Hazra Inyat Khan is coming from. Um, yeah, because this this chapter was lit, in my opinion. Ah, uh, yes. Alexi put in the chat, observing, handshake, emoji, doing. They are definitely connected for me. Well, y'all, um, I want to hold a little bit more space if anyone else has anything to say about the chapter or this discussion. Um, and if not, that's totally okay. They, these conversations take place every Saturday at 11 a.m. in the Broom Radio. So um, if you'd like to follow up and join these conversations live, I welcome you to join um, by clicking the Discord link at the bottom of this episode's details. And if you're already in the Broom, you know, just feel free and hop on like you did today. Um, if you need the text, holla at me or any other tender. Um, so that you can have access to the text because we have a PDF in here. Um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's all the official things. So thank y'all so much. Take care of yourselves and have a beautiful start to the week. Peace. Thank you, you too. Thanks, Macha.